Good morning. Welcome to Jays Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Another bad Toronto Blue Jays game yesterday. Saying it more often than not lately. It uh, has been a tough week. They dropped three of four to the Baltimore Orioles. A couple of them in pretty frustrating fashion yesterday included. They lose 6-1. A pretty anemic game when it comes to uh, the plate. Uh, Just an inability to do damage. Once again, issues with runners in scoring position, one for seven with runners in scoring position, couple instances with, with runners in scoring position and fewer than two outs and nothing comes across. You see the Orioles tacking on a run here and there when they get in similar situations, even if they don't, you know, have the big inning. Frustrating series. How frustrating? So Jays lose three or four to the Orioles. They manage 10 runs on 18 hits over four games. 10 runs, 18 hits. Ryan Mountcastle himself knocks in six runs and has 12 hits. The Jays, I mean, this isn't how baseball works. One guy doesn't beat you, but Ryan Mountcastle had 67% as many hits as the Blue Jays had and knocked in 60% as many runs as the the Blue Jays scored over the entirety of that series. It hasn't been great. Kevin Gosman had his second shortest outing of the year, just four and a third innings. Um, Not so much ineffectiveness in that he was getting hammered, but uh, very pitch inefficient. The Orioles stuck to their game plan, nickel and dimed him for eight hits and a couple walks. He threw 103 pitches over those four to third innings. Uh, Bowden Francis and Yenesis Cabrera do a pretty good job keeping the game within reach as best they can. Francis allowed one inherited runner to score, uh, but they do a decent job. And then they roll it over to Thomas Hatch. And honestly, I, I, I like Thomas Hatch enough. I know that the changeup has improved a ton. I know that his track record in AAA since a, a tough start to the season has been really, really strong. But rolling Thomas Hatch out there for two and a third innings in what was at that point a 4-1 game, 3-1 game rather at that point, uh, it really did seem like a white flag. Uh, we aren't going to use high leverage relievers in what is a close game against a divisional opponent because we're not going to score two runs. It's not going to matter. Uh, maybe look, it, you can justify those things over the course of 162. You now have the leverage parts of your bullpen rested for this Boston Red Sox series, which is also a huge series. The Red Sox are only two games back in the wild card race. Um, so three at Boston against a team you haven't beat yet this year. I get it, but it did feel a little uncomfortable being down just a couple runs and having that feeling not only with the plate appearances the Blue Jays were having, but also with how the bullpen was deployed with the lowest leverage arms only uh, that they didn't feel like the runs were going to come either. Now, I uh, I tried to get myself right after the game, went to a concert. Uh, it had a lightning delay, but otherwise it was a nice night. And then I get home and I'm like, oh, Shohei's on. And he has uh, thrown four shutout innings and hit a home run and stole a base. As our pal Sarah Langza of MLB Network notes, uh, he is just the second player since like 100 years ago to homer, steal a base, and throw a scoreless inning in the same game. The last one was Pablo Sandoval, who did the uh, position player pitching thing. Um, So yeah, another great Shohei game, and then the Angels blow it in the ninth. And I don't set that up uh, as a means of, you know, oh, Jays fans, you have it bad, the Angels have it worse. Uh, Just to point out that the teams around the Jays, the teams chasing the Jays in the wildcard race, uh, not particularly strong. Although the Jays are on the outside looking in right now at the, at the New York Yankees. Um, So nobody should feel good 
about anything. You should feel bad. You should start your Friday off feeling bad about the Toronto Blue Jays. Uh, let's tag in a guest who's very good at feeling bad. It's Jonah Bierenbaum of The Score. Jonah, how are you? I continue to be amazed by your introductions, my friend. I'm doing well. How are you, buddy? I'm, I'm, I was a little better this morning when I saw we got a, a new EP from the Front Bottoms, a, a band you and I ha- have seen together a couple of times. And Jonah, honestly, to sprinkle a little bit of positivity and maybe wish casting here, um, there was a summer not too long ago where the Blue Jays were in a very similar situation to this. The Front Bottoms released a new album. You and I ended up uh, tag like double double decorating a Blue Jays playoff game along with the Front Bottoms concert. Uh, we, we've got, I'm, I'm reaching here, but maybe a good omen for the playoff push to come? Perhaps, but I think a critical distinction <laughs> is that that summer, they made an absolute bonanza at the trade deadline that completely transformed their active roster. They brought in David Price, Troy Tulowitzki, Latroy Hawkins, Ben Revere. Uh, they completely transformed the team, whereas at this year's deadline, they did no such thing. They brought in a couple of cromulent relievers and, uh, you know, a, a, I suppose a viable enough replacement for Bo Bichette insofar as anyone can replace Bo Bichette. But they certainly didn't make the splash that they did in 2015 uh, when we saw that front-bottom show and <laughs> when... Obviously, the team went on to enjoy uh, their most incredible uh, run in in more than two decades. So I don't know if I necessarily see <laughs> the two cases as analogous, but I'd like to believe that this team has that ability to go on a similar run, despite the fact uh, that their deadline wasn't nearly as impactful. I'm I'm trying here, man. I'm I'm trying, and yeah, the the deadline acquisitions this year compared to 2015. That's like, okay, what if they had picked up like Pete Cosma and Carlos Villanueva from the Cardinals uh, that year instead of Tulo and, and David Price and a bunch of other guys? Uh, you're right, not not comparable at all as much as I'm trying. So uh, clearly in, in you laying that out and you know, this is kind of the last day of deadline week. So it will get people's kind of wrapped feelings on, on the deadline that was throughout the course of this show. Uh, ben Wagner coming on with us a little bit later, Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs, who did his uh, who gained, who lost the most in terms of playoff and world series odds coming out of the deadline. But Jonah uh, in reading your tone there, you found the Jays deadline wanting to some degree. It came up a, a little short of, of what you need, what you thought they needed to add. Is that fair? Very much so. I don't see how you couldn't characterize this deadline as disappointing. It's not that Jordan Hicks and Yenesis Cabrera weren't fine additions. It's that they failed to address their biggest area of need. They desperately needed another bat, specifically a right-handed bat, and ideally an outfielder that could have spelled Dalton Varsho or Kevin Kiermaier against left-handed pitching, and more broadly would just give them a second viable pinch-hitting option off the bench after whichever catcher isn't in the lineup. And Now, I, I appreciate that the cost was likely high given the lack of inventory and I get that their plans were maybe slightly derailed by the fact that they needed to get a replacement for Bo Bichette but still they couldn't have been more aggressive on Tommy Pham they couldn't have brokered a 17th trade with St. Louis for <laughs> Tyler O'Neill. Uh, it, it's a shame, not only because the teams that you you alluded to uh, earlier, that the teams that they're competing with in the American League largely got better, but also because the last few days have painted a pretty grim picture of what life without Bo Bichette is like offensively. And moreover, the internal options aren't terribly encouraging either. So uh, it really feels like this was a missed opportunity to address a very obvious area of need. And now, uh, you know, their offense is sort of uh, on their own. No one's coming to save them. And that could be uh, very problematic. 
Well, nobody's coming to save them unless you really, really believe in the AAA numbers of Davis Schneider, who uh, our mm-hmm. pal Johnny Junta of the Gate 14 podcast broke yesterday. Uh, he's on his way up. Our beat reporters at Sportsnet have since uh, confirmed that we don't know the corresponding move, but we, we expect Davis Schneider to be around the team in Boston. We'll circle back to that in a minute here. Uh, Jonah, when you look around the trade deadline at, at what other teams of the American League did, you, you kind of said it there that you didn't make up ground. And sure, maybe nobody caught up ground with you but you weren't in a position where you could feel comfortable about that when you look around the American League um, if you were you know if we were going to tier this in terms of teams you're most afraid of or most confident in um, to take kind of a national view at it where where do the Blue Jays stack up in there are they in that kind of messy five six seven range yeah, I believe so. I think that Houston and Texas, given what they both accomplished at the deadline, have probably established themselves as the one and two in my mind, uh, not necessarily in that order, but the one and two in the American League, followed by Baltimore and Tampa Bay. And then there's a steep drop off and then it's Toronto and then perhaps another drop off and then the teams immediately behind Toronto chasing down that third wild card spot. But it's hard not to see Houston, the reigning World Series champions, as arguably the best team now. I, I mean, they reunite with Justin Verlander, which is, uh, you know, obviously uh, an outsized move and gives them five solid or better starters. And arguably they have the best starter in baseball right now in Framber Valdez, who just came off uh, that sensational no-hitter. But then also, you know, they have Jordan Alvarez back in the lineup. He's missed roughly half the season. He's arguably the best, second-best, third-best hitter in all of baseball. Uh, So their lineup is firing on all cylinders. Uh, They've completely fortified their rotation. They even added to the bullpen in acquiring Kendall Graveman, getting him back. Uh, So that's a very complete team that's clearly uh, chasing down another World Series title. And then Texas, who came into the deadline with the best offense in all of baseball, you know, they also added to their rotation in an incredibly meaningful way. They added Max Scherzer, they added Jordan Montgomery, uh, which will not only more than compensate for the absence of Nathan Eovaldi, but it gives them a very, very formidable postseason rotation and complements now the best offense in all of baseball ball with one of the best rotations as well. And then, you know, you you look at the teams in the American League East, and they both added as well, but they weren't necessarily as formidable as those teams out West coming into the deadline. Baltimore is obviously a very solid team. They certainly uh, very handily dispatched of the Blue Jays and have handled them all year. But, you know, they have overperformed their PIFAG record this year. They're playing a little bit above their heads, I still believe. They're 20-10 and in one-run games, as we know. And then, you know, they they did add Jack Flaherty, who yesterday obviously looked sensational. (laughs) He hasn't looked like that pitcher in a long time so he's a bit of an x factor for me but you know they're certainly a very good team that got better and then tampa bay they did add aaron savali but the problem is for them uh with shane mcclanahan now out with an elbow injury and potentially out for who knows how long it's an elbow injury their rotation is pretty banged up they're down mcclanahan they're down jeffrey springs uh so they really only have three viable starters right now and their offense has mostly been scuffling since may uh so you know i definitely see houston and texas as one and two followed by baltimore and tampa followed by the Blue Jays and then everyone else. Which is a, a tough way to be if you're the Toronto Blue Jays. And it's it's got to be frustrating for them to feel in that spot as well because I think on the pitching side, you know, there there has been the Alec Manoa of this season. But for the most part, this pitching staff has done its job. It's been one of the best bullpens in baseball and they fortified that with Hicks and to a lesser extent Cabrera. Um, Barrios has been 
far better than we could have realistically anticipated after last season. Gosman is Gosman yesterday aside. Bassett and Kikuchi pretty solid as far as 3-4 goes. So um, this is a team that on the run prevention side has done the job. You look at this offense and what this offense is going to look like during the stretch without Bo Bichette, who has been unquestionably their their most valuable position player this year. Um, what do you what do you need to see to uh, not even to have confidence in a, in a playoff series? Because let's assume Bo Bichette's back and fine by then, but to to have confidence that they're going to be able to tread water enough to get there in the first place. They're now out of a wild card spot uh, as we currently stand, and I would say if not all, very close to all of the issues come on the batting side. What do you make of that and what needs to change in the near term here? Uh, It's the same thing that we were saying months ago. We've been beating this drum all season long. They need more production out of their core hitters. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. has a WRC plus below 120. George Springer hasn't even been a league average hitter this year thanks to his miserable July and into August. Dalton Varsho has been one of the worst qualified hitters in all of baseball. And these are guys around whom the team is built. There is simply no way to it to overcome the fact that these core guys who hit at the top of the lineup around whom the offense is built are not producing right if if those guys aren't delivering they're not going to score runs so you know it, it's kind of the same tune like i said that we've been singing all season long they need their key guys to step up or they're not going to score any runs and i, I you know i think that this three game stretch now without bo Bichette was was a pretty grim you know indicator of where this team might be now for the time being if more guys aren't producing at a higher level you know in three games without Bo they scored eight runs and they hit well below 200 it was really really difficult to watch you hope that that isn't predictive it's obviously only a three-game sample you hope it's not a harbinger but at the same time you know barring you know just a, a simply a turnaround from multiple key guys it's really hard to envision this team being an offensive juggernaut moving forward so we've done the Vlad conversation a lot and you know we've obviously seen the upside with Vlad the first half of that 2021 season even when we adjust for the park factors and things like that we've seen him have better stretches it, it's it just hasn't come with any regularity this year something we haven't been able to dig in on as much because the drop off has been so quick and so dramatic over the last three seasons is the George Springer side of things. Now, early in the year, he struggled, but he had some positive indicators underneath, whether the batted ball stuff, what he was and wasn't swinging at that. Those things have kind of started to go the wrong direction now as well. Springer's about to turn 34. He's got three years left on this deal. There is a lot of runway where this team is going to have to figure it out and have to figure out how to get more out of George Springer. Um, When you look at, at what he's doing, you know, either at the plate or in the numbers is there anything that that stands out to you other than you know because some of it is you know dumb luck and we saw that with the one hit that did drop in during his long hitless stretch but it's not all dumb luck he's not hitting the balls hard anymore he's striking out a little bit more some of the swing decisions up there are off um man it, it can't be this big a fall this quickly for george springer right you you wouldn't think so, but then, you know, you look at the quality of the plate appearances, the swing decisions, the contact quality, it all paints a pretty dispiriting picture. You know, since the All-Star break, his expected batting average is 181. Oof. You know, that reflects a lack of quality contact, um, you know, and I think it's been readily apparent in his body language. He's frustrated. He's unaccustomed to being uh, so punchless at the plate. You know, not only has he never been a, a below-league average hitter before, but, you know, over the last 
half decade plus, he's been one of the top 15 hitters or so in all of baseball. So this is obviously incredibly frustrating for him. And it's incredibly troubling for the Blue, for the Blue Jays because they still have him under contract for three more years. You know, one way or another, he's going to be a critical part of this team. Uh, so he simply needs to figure it out. And, you know, for me, I think one of the things that I've noticed is that he's getting absolutely overloaded uh, with spinning stuff from right-handed pitchers. And I don't think he's being selective enough on those pitches. He's attacking them more than he ought to be as opposed to waiting for fastballs in the zone that he can drive. Uh, and I appreciate that, you know, he's been moved into a run-producing role and he's in the midst of a slump. So he's probably going to press more and really put it upon himself to drive in runs and be the man. But, you know, I think he needs to get back a little bit more to being more selective, uh, to even being more selective in the zone and not necessarily swinging at pitcher's pitches, even if they're strikes. Uh, because until he starts, you know, I, I think tightening up his approach a little bit more uh, and refusing to swing at breaking stuff, particularly early in counts and in hitters counts, you know, pitchers are going to keep attacking him with that because he hasn't shown any ability to lay off or to drive those pitches this year. Uh, so, you know, it's incumbent on him now uh, to make an adjustment Mint, uh, because you know this level of productivity just isn't going to cut it for the Blue Jays. It's not. And look, we you said it off the very top, and we can dig into some of the more minutiae stuff and find some areas. You know, there's there's always a little bit of money in the banana stand if you you shake it out enough. Um, but if you Look, like you said, this team is not going to go where it needs to go offensively without their big pieces performing more specifically. Vlad, George Springer, uh, Dalton Varsho, who, you know, they at least expect to be a league average bat when you factor in some of the power there. Having said all of that, Jonah, this team has also gotten pretty little out of their bench. It's a front office that has basically decided for two years in a row now to punt the 26th roster spot because, hey, we'd rather have a specialist in that role who we almost never use uh, for whatever reason, rather than, you know, having someone who's more of a, a strict platoon or, or spreading those plate appearances around. And you, you can get it when your first nine or 10 guys are performing really well. Like last year, they had 11 players with a, an OPS plus of league average or better. So you can, you can find your way to it. Then this year though, they've given 60 plus plate appearances to Luplo Clement Lucas. They have had, uh, you know, I mean, we can throw Tyler Heineman out of the the sample because Every team uses a third catcher at some point, but they've also had a guy on the roster for large chunks of the season who they just don't use at all. In addition to that, Santiago Espinal and Kevin Biggio have not been particularly strong, especially uh, that's especially true with Santiago Espinal. Now I mentioned it earlier. It sounds like we're getting David Schneider, Johnny Junta of gate 14 podcast saying Schneider's on his way up for this Boston series. Shai Davidi uh, then reported the same later uh, backing up Johnny sources sources. Uh, so David Schneider is a guy who prior to this year, people hadn't heard a ton about. He was kind of a non prospect. He was left unprotected in the rule five draft and made his way through. Wasn't on the 40 man coming into this year. Uh, there will need to be a corresponding move, but this guy has been unbelievable at triple a his triple a july he hit 348 with a 540 obp uh nearly double the walks to strikeouts and, and you look at the entire season um there's a lot of good stuff with swing decisions how infrequently he swings the kind of creating this idea that he's going up there with a plan of attack and sticking to that now we probably have to see that a little bit more on a day-to-day -day basis than just diving into the the numbers in the video uh, allows us but it really does seem like 
he is a professional hitter. Um, with the news that he could be coming up here, I assume for Ernie Clement uh, in this Boston series, what would you expect to see from a 24-year-old who has kind of hit at every level but doesn't have the prospect shine of a lot of other guys on that AAA Buffalo team? I guess what I'm trying to get at is how do you – how do you calibrate your expectations for a guy like that who didn't have the buzz on his way up but just keeps hitting? Yeah, I mean, one thing I would expect is high-quality plate appearances because even before his 2023 breakout, he was consistently posting really strong OBPs in the upper levels of the minor leagues. Looking back at his 2022 at AA, you know, in his first taste of AA as a 23-year-old, so he wasn't exactly young for the level, but he wasn't old for the level, OBP of almost three set, uh, of almost 370, and then he bumps up to AAA last year for his first taste, and he puts, puts up an OBP of almost 390, and then this year in his first proper go-around of AAA, he's been one of the best hitters in the entire international league so this is a hitter who's consistently demonstrated uh, that he can put up high quality plate appearances that he has on base skills he understands the strike zone and this newfound ability that he's discovered to do damage is incredibly encouraging so you know, I, I'm frankly excited about what this means for, for you know, John Schneider's ability to match up. And it gives him, I think, genuinely another potential weapon uh, that, as you alluded to, he hasn't had all year. You know, you described guys like Clement and Lucas as specialists. I wouldn't even characterize them as such because they're really just players with redundant skill sets that doesn't really provide John Schneider an opportunity, an organic opportunity to get them in in a favorable matchup because they don't present, you know, any uh, stronger matchup than any of the top 11 or 12 position players uh, who do play uh, for this team. So, you know, I'm I'm optimistic about, you know, Davis Schneider. He is a right-handed stick, right? And, and you know, maybe if you squint and if you wish cast, he can be the right-handed uh, power bat that the Blue Jays front office neglected to add at the deadline. Hmm. Uh, but fundamentally, you know, this is a guy who has hit at every level, you know, even, you know, this year he's he's walked almost as frequently as he struck out in addition to the damage so you know this is a guy who clearly knows how to hit he has a plan at the plate uh and and you know it's it's really going to be curious uh or rather fascinating to see how john schneider goes about working him into his lineup you know if he sort of comes up and immediately uh you know shows that he is putting up high quality plate appearances is he going to be playing you know over dalton Varsho regularly against left-handed pitching is he going to be coming off the bench you know pretty regularly for kevin kiermeyer for Varsho? show for whomever i don't know but it's definitely going to be interesting to see because he represents a different option than john schneider's had in that 26 man role all season long i'll also be curious to see if he does get a start against a lefty sake because that the triple a buffalo team has been all about positional versatility everyone's playing all over the diamond because they're kind of flush with second base slash third base types or guys who play shortstop but won't stick at shortstop so schneider has played primarily left field and second base. He's also played some first, third, and right field this year. Um, it's been a minute since he played shortstop, but he did do that at one. Uh, he's got six innings of shortstop under his belt and did the position player pitching thing a couple times in the minors. So he is uh, he has played just about every spot except for center field and catcher uh, throughout his minor league career. Now, I say it's interesting to see where he's used because – Sometimes with those guys, and again, we're, we're doing a little bit of scouting the stat line and talking to people around the team or around baseball to get a feel for these guys. I see a guy who bounces around positions a lot, and I wonder 
is that because he's a good defender? Is it because, you know, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays brain a little bit of, well, it's better to be bad at a bunch of positions than good at one. Um, So I think it'll tell us something, you know, if him and Whit Merrifield are both in the lineup on the same day, does he play second base or left field Uh, is I think an interesting thing to find out. Jonah, where is your... Look, he he absolutely has to be used more than the Luplo Lucas Clement trio is. Um, but in terms of balancing the fact that this team needs a bat like him on the bench right now, but also the developmental side of he needs to be getting pretty regular plate appearances to keep developing it and keep growing as a hitter. Um, what do you think is a, is it like a reasonable amount of playing time for Schneider while he's up? I mean, I, I think at this point where the Blue Jays are uh, in the context of the season, in the context of their competitive window, they can't really afford to prioritize any prospect or, or even fringe prospects development over maximizing wins at the big league level. So I, I think whenever John Schneider feels that Davis Schneider gives him the, the, the better matchup than whomever, whether that's Varsho or Kiermaier or whoever, Davis Schneider needs to be in there. And when he doesn't, he needs to be on the bench. Like at this point, you know, priority number one is not ensuring that Davis Schneider is ready to go in 2024 and is, you know, getting in every rep that he can to maximize his growth right now. It's that the big league team doesn't, uh, you know, forego an opportunity to win a game because right now there is no margin for error. Every win is absolutely critical. So, you know, in terms of what I expect, I wouldn't be surprised if he deployed him pretty liberally. Uh, you know, he he's done everything at the AAA level to demonstrate that, you know, he deserves this opportunity and deserves some run. And moreover, Dalton Varsho has been really terrible <laughs> offensively all year. There's there's simply no sugarcoating that. I wouldn't be surprised if whenever the Blue Jays for the next little while encounter a left-handed starter, Davis Schneider was in there. And frankly, I support that because this offense needs a boost. He seems like he's capable of giving one. Uh, and, you know, th- there's, there's kind of no reason not to try it right now, given what you're getting from the incumbents. You were, we're going to see a left-handed pitcher on the hill tonight in James Paxton. Uh, the Red Sox have a couple of TBDs the rest of the series, but the rest of their starters are right-handed. They do, though, right now have a bullpen where four lefties are in there. So um, whether it's against James Paxton tonight or some pinch hit scenarios later in games, you know, we've seen the Jays run into those pockets of the order where Varsho X Kiermaier are seven, eight, nine, and you can pinch it for one, if not both of those. Um, actually, that brings up a, a point because er- Ernie Clement was swinging a bat yesterday, Jonah, in a spot where Dalton Varsho had just been pinch hit for and Kevin Kiermaier was coming up. I think they opted not to because there was two outs and, and nobody on and it wasn't that high leverage spot. Who do you, th- if they pinch hit for both Varsho and Kiermaier in a game, who do you think is getting the center field spot? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, oof, oof, man. Uh, I, I would think George Springer, no? I mean, it, it would almost have to be, right? Like, especially if Ernie yeah. Clement's no longer on the roster. Yeah. Yeah, it's I a, think it would be. It's a bit of an odd one. And, and like, obviously, that's a, that's a scenario where if you don't score the runs, you probably don't care who's in center field anyway because, it's true. you know, you're down a couple. But it is pretty interesting that, that Kiermaier and Varsho are two, to this point, still the only guys who have played uh, – who've played center field for this team. All right, Jonah, uh, Red Sox this weekend. Jays have not done well against the Red Sox so far this season. Hmm. Red Sox right behind them, and the the Yankees have now jumped them. Uh, Asking how big a series this is is 
pretty obvious. Um, but Alec Manoa on the hill tonight and, and then Brios and Bassett later in the series as we continue to roll through this six-man rotation. Um, the, the hitting stuff obviously just has to come on its own. You could use another like 27-run outburst at, at Fenway. Um, what, are you, what are you looking for from Manoa tonight uh, to kind of continue the up and down but slowly trending up that we've seen from Manoa the last little bit? Uh, that's a generous reading, I would say. But yeah, I mean, look, man, strikes. it's Friday. I'm trying to be trying to sprinkle a little positivity in here. I, I appreciate you, buddy. He's got to throw strikes. I mean, this has been the issue with him all season long: is is failing to get ahead of hitters, failing to pound the zone. You know, even since the All Star break, right? Which is, you know, he he came up and got that soft landing against Detroit, and he pitched well on that. But since then, his zone rate is still eighth lowest among starters. Uh, he's just not throwing strikes consistently, despite you know the the, the breather down in Triple A. Um, and, and frankly, I mean, this is a really tough matchup for Alec Manoa. This is one of the better offenses in baseball. They're tenth in the majors in WRC plus, but moreover, they have a lot of really good left-handed hitters. Jaron Duran, Rafael Devers, Masataki Yoshida, Tristan Casas, Alex Verdugo. All of those guys have been average or better. And in fact, it's Jay's killer Alex Verdugo, who among <sighs> that group is having the worst season, uh, which is hard to believe. But those are uh, that's a really, really strong set of lefties which, as we know, Alec Manoa has really struggled against this year. And on that note, you know, this is a lineup that absolutely crushes sort of middling fastballs from right-handed pitchers. Uh, you know, Alec Manoa sits 91-93 to 93 against heaters 91-93 to 93 this year. Uh, the Red Sox are third in the majors in expected slugging at 547. So, you know, this is not the Detroit Tigers we're dealing with here. This isn't even the Seattle Mariners or the Los Angeles Angels. This is a really, really difficult matchup. Uh, Alec Manoa is going to have even more imperative to get ahead of hitters so that he can leverage his slider, which has looked at times better of late than it did early in the season. Certainly two times out against Seattle, he got 10 whips with his slider, which was a season high, and that was encouraging. Uh, but again, it comes down to throwing strikes, which he has not done with any consistency of late or on the whole for the season getting ahead of hitters so that he can use his slider to its maximum effectiveness. Uh, and if he can do that, you know, maybe he can get through five or six uh, with minimal damage tonight, but it's not going to be easy. It's certainly not. And uh, you know, Alex Verdugo will be fired up to face Alec Manoa and oh, yeah. maybe some, uh, I, I don't know that we'll see much trash talk from Manoa the way things have gone right now. Uh, Jonah, Thank you for taking the time out this morning, man. I had a little bit of Jose Batista trivia for you because next Saturday is Jose Batista day, of course, but we'll just have to bring you on next week and do a little. Sounds good, buddy. All right. Jonah Bierenbaum of The Score. Uh, check him out at Bierenball on Twitter. A lot of great work over at The Score. Um, it is Jose Batista week next week. Hopefully we'll have some. Uh, I mean, I've got lots of Jose Batista trivia stuff fired up and, and, and ready to go uh, for next week already that we'll sprinkle in with some guests. Uh, we'll see if we have any uh, Jose Batista adjacent guests in the mix as well. Uh, our next guest has no Jose Batista adjacencies whatsoever. But he did run his Zips model at Fangraphs uh, to see who changed their playoff wild card World Series odds the most at the trade deadline. Dan Zimborski of Fangraphs joins us next as Jay's Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Discussing the biggest stories that matter to Toronto sports fans. The Fan Morning Show with Ailish Forfar and Justin Cuthbert. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. 
That is a song called Help, which the Blue Jays could use a little bit of right now. Uh, their positioning in the playoff race is uh, tenuous, to say the least. They are now a game and a half back of the final wild card spot. Of the final two wild card spots, technically, are the Yankees sneaking ahead of them right now despite losing yesterday. Uh, so Jays game and a half back, Angels two back. The Red Sox, three and a half back of that wild card spot and two back of the Jays. So uh, a pretty important series here between Toronto and a team they have not defeated yet this season. Uh, potential reinforcements coming. We mentioned it with Jonah Bierenbaum last segment that uh, according to a report from Johnny Junta of the Gate 14 podcast, later confirmed by Shai Davidi, David Schneider is on his uh, on his way to join the team in Boston. Uh, unsure of the corresponding roster move, I would imagine it's Ernie Clement, unless there's some sort of IL thing uh, that we're not aware of. But a little bit about David Schneider for you while we wait to connect with Dan Zimborski here. Um, so Schneider has been bouncing all around the diamond for this Buffalo Bisons team. First, second, third, left, even a little bit of right. He's primarily worked second base and left field, so you know, kind of the, the Whit Merrifield deployment there, but uh, some real positional versatility around the diamond. As I understand it, he is not elite at any of those spots, but serviceable, solid. Uh, the fact that they trust him at third base, that they've given him shots, uh, given him a shot in right field, that he was at one point a fringy shortstop. Um, you, you'd like to think at 24 that some of the, some of the defense can play there at least at second and in left field mentioned some of his stats for the month of July and why him over Addison Barger uh, for this club. I think why over Aurelvis Martinez, pretty straightforward. Aurelvis just has not spent a lot of time at AAA yet. He's only 21 still. Um, Leo Jimenez, who if they hadn't acquired Paul DeYoung would maybe get the call because of his, his glove at AA. Um, you know, it's just a little bit away. So though he has started to hit at double a uh, Schneider with a three forty eight average in July and a 1.27 OPS on the season. He has only swung at pitches outside of the zone about 20% of the time. It's a very strong chase rate. Uh, he has an 18% walk rate, which is very good. And he only swings at 39% of pitches, which is uh pretty, pretty low. And what that tells you, all of those things together, some of that might be, yeah, it's triple a pitching and, and he's figured it out at this point, even though it's only his first full season down there, that would still be encouraging, but this is uh, you know, a plan of attack hitter and a stick to what your game plan is stick to what your strengths are hitter strengths of Dan Zimborski are making us feel a little bit less good about the Toronto Blue Jays playoff chances. Uh, we're joined by Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs now. He has his annual big piece up who changed their fate the most at the deadline, looking at um, what everyone's playoff and World Series odds were before these trades and after these trades. Dan, how you doing, buddy? I'm doing well, Blake, although I tend to make people feel worse because I'm kind of grumpy. So mm -hmm. are, are you sure you wanted me on? Well, I'm look, I don't want to make people feel better or worse. I just want people to know the truth. And the truth is obviously that the Blue Jays now have a 1.3% less chance of winning the American League East. That That's just facts, Dan. Um, so for anyone who doesn't know, this is not based on, you know, the results that have happened the last couple of days. You reset the season at August 1st or August 2nd, and you run the simulations roster before the trade deadline roster without the trades. Um, the Blue Jays do lose a little bit here in the division, but no change to their playoff odds overall because some of the teams behind them took steps backwards. Um, when you looked at kind of where the results of this of this simulations came out, 
Um, what did you make of the Blue Jays kind of being, yeah, they're not going to win the division and they probably weren't anyway, but now we're looking at, hey, the, the deadline was almost exactly neutral for them in terms of playoff odds. What did you make of that result? Uh, yeah, I think around the league as a whole, it was kind of a dull deadline in a lot of ways. Some of the best names didn't move. Uh, uh, confusingly, uh, I'm still surprised the Tigers didn't really close any Eduardo Rodriguez deal. So it said they're probably going to watch him walk at the end of the year. Uh, but I, but the reason the Blue Jays lost a very tiny bit of ground was simply because, you know, the projections like the upside of Jack Flaherty better in, in an Orioles rotation that is not great at the back. They, they do like Aaron Savali, who does, you know, protect a raise against some injury concerns. And they, they have a lot of injury concerns in their rotation as well. And really just Hicks and DeYoung didn't really move the needle quite as much. Uh, but as you said, they didn't really lose relative to the league because the Mariners didn't really take that much of a step forward. Uh, the, the guardians are worse. Uh, and so they're looking even less likely as a wild card contender. And even then it was already long. Uh, the angels, I mean, really didn't get that much better. Uh, Despite the Giolito trade, the, the trades afterwards more names than actual performance. So, I mean, Blue Jays shouldn't be upset where they are. And, you know, six and a half games right now, it's not an ideal uh, margin to make up in two months, but they're very likely to win one of the wild cards. Yeah, it seems that way, even though they've fallen out of uh, one of those positions right now, those updated uh, playoff odds. And this doesn't account for the last couple of days. This is just in your simulation post deadline, mm-hmm. had them at about 70%, 69.8%. Dan, I'm curious as to your thoughts uh, specifically on two of the Jays additions, because two of the guys they picked up from the Cardinals have been very up and down. Now with Jordan Hicks, we expect that a lot of relievers are really up and down. He had a terrible April and has been pretty lights out since, but with Paul DeYoung, it's more of a year to year and tale of two careers kind of thing where, you know, he comes onto the scene in 2017 looks like, uh, you know, uh, Hey, he's a power hitting shortstop power hitting shortstops are rare 2019. He hits 30 bombs. And then the last couple of years have gone so poorly that he was even in the minor leagues last year. Um, he's kind of, split the difference so far this season and been a, a little under league average as a hitter. Uh, what do we make of a guy who has certainly displayed those skills, but the decline came so much earlier in his career than we'd expect based on a normal aging curve. How, how do we, how do we make heads or tails of a, of a guy like Paul DeYoung? Well, the thing about the young is one, one thing you, you see when you look at his 2021 and 2022, which were pretty much the, the, the dead years. Uh, he hit like, 175 or something combined in the two seasons. Uh, I don't, I haven't added it up, but it was, it was pretty brutal, but there was kind of a silver lining because it was a loss on batting average and balls in play. And both years he had uh Bebips in the, in the um, 210 range, uh, 210 to 220. And that, being that poor at hitting balls into play uh, that, that become hits isn't really a repeatable skill or I guess a non-skill in this case. Uh, for example, when you look at when pitchers were hitting, pitchers as a whole tend to have batting average and balls in play in the 220 to 230 range. And then you kind of have to ask yourself, is a major league hitter that hits 19 home runs in a season really worse at hitting unfieldable balls than the average pitcher is? And I would have to say that's probably illogical. And history shows that those players tend to bounce back. And this year, his batting average and balls in play actually does reflect what the uh, the Statcast type data, the advanced data, say uh, that he should be kind of in the 270, 280 range, which is where he is this year. Uh, so I think that what we're seeing this 
season is probably pretty close to his actual level of play. Uh, so I don't expect him to take a big step back or anything, although it's certainly possible. Hmm. Uh, I, I think he's a good fit, and he's you know he's a good plan B uh, uh, for for the Jays. He certainly is, and the Jays, you know, their deadline was colored a little bit by the fact that the day before the deadline, Bo Bichette hurt his knee. We didn't quite know what that severity would be like. He, he's on the IL now and not traveling with the team, but we don't have a firm timeline. Dan, wh- what would you anticipate, you know, when we talk about the, the Blue Jays' playoff odds and what they looked like immediately post-deadline, if we factor in, you know, a little some missed time for Bo Bichette here now that he's on the IL, he's been their best position player this year, you know, at, at what point do we start? I guess at what point does the drop off from Bichette to DeYoung and, and then the trickle down drop off of, hey, those DeYoung bench reps are going to Santiago Espinal now? Like, could that cost the Jays a win down the stretch here if Bo misses two, three, two, three weeks? Uh, two to three weeks, probably not. Okay. Uh, because if you think the Young's a two-win player over the course of a season, and you think Bichette's a six-win player over the course of the season, when you're talking two or three weeks, the difference is under a win, and that, of course, could come into play because many playoff races have been settled by a win, uh, but I don't think it's a major disaster, and I think that's why it was a really good idea. Uh, I, I would argue that the, the Young trade wasn't really a trade deadline trade. It was a normal injury trade that just happened to be needed to be done right then and there because it just happened to happen right at the deadline. Uh, I, I think that the Young is pretty crucial uh, in the very specific case of the Jays and was probably more valuable to the Jays than pretty much every team in baseball right now simply because of the uncertainty about Bichette. Uh, as long as Bichette's back and healthy in like a month or so, I, I, I'm not really worried about that, even though there's you know significant uncertainty. Yeah, there is there is significant uncertainty, but we we haven't got the worst news yet, and we'll choose to be uh, as positive as we can with, with that for now. Okay, so um, the Jays, and again, I'll repeat these numbers for anyone who hasn't checked the article out, but go check the article out at Fangraphs. Um, the Jays' chances of winning the American League East dropped by about 1.3 percentage points coming out of the deadline. Again, that's not accounting for the fact that they just fell flat on their faces against the Orioles here. Um, no real change to their playoff odds overall because Seattle, New York, Cleveland, and Boston combined to lose 14.1% chance at making the playoffs by holding pad or, or even selling in some cases when you look at the way things stack up in the American League um, and what these I mean the moves on the surface and then also what the numbers are telling us do you see this as hey there are two really good AL East teams there are two really good AL West teams and then the Jays head up the next tier is is that a fair way of categorizing the the American League right now I would actually uh I don't think there really is a clear-cut best team in the AL right now. Hmm. I'd probably put five teams in the top tier. Uh, even though the, the Jays are behind the Orioles in a raise, I think if you somehow played the season a million times, which you know you can't do, and the players in you would probably object to playing the season <laughs> a million times, but I, I think that the Blue Jays are roughly in that same tier as the Orioles and Rays are right now, uh, along with the Rangers and the Astros. Uh, I think that the Braves are probably the best team in baseball. And dare I say, I might put them in their own tier. Not that that means they're going to win the World Series because the playoffs in, in uh, baseball, as, as Billy Bean has said, is are kind of a crapshoot. Uh, but I, I, I think the Jays even you don't like where their position is because they're five behind the Rays and six and a half behind the Orioles. But I think the Jays are as good as the Rays or the Orioles. 
That makes sense. And yeah, Billy Bean, I don't know if you're referencing MLB League office Billy Bean or general manager Billy Bean, but general manager Billy Bean is so frustrated with the playoff format that he's just decided to never make them again, uh, which is uh, a great response. The uh, the quiet quitting of the, the playoff format. I'm curious, Dan, when you when you run these odds and you look at the deadline that was speaking of this playoff format, um, you know, the teams in the national league, other than maybe the Dodgers weren't very aggressive. And you look and it's like, well, the Braves are, the Braves have almost double the world series odds of any other team in baseball. They look so strong. And then you look in the American league and the only teams that were really aggressive were the teams atop the the West and the East where there's a chance to get a buy out of the first round. Do you think the new playoff format has kind of shifted some of where those leverage points are incentive wise for, for buying teams where, you know, it, maybe this is a, an outlier year, but to me, it looks a little bit like teams aren't willing to spend just to get into the wild card. But if you've got a chance at, you know, securing one of those buys, then maybe it pushes teams a little more aggressive. I think it's subtle, but this is kind of the, I wouldn't say it's the kind of progression of a long-term trend because the cheaper that playoff spots are, the less valuable each playoff spot is to make the world series. Then you, the, the more a strategy of trying to maximize your number of playoff appearances rather than max your quality in any given one season, that it, it changes the calculus of everything. And that's one of the reasons, uh, one of the sticky reasons that owners love playoffs because both, it brings an additional revenue and it also reduces the value of free agents simply because wins become more valuable when you have a lower bar to make the playoffs because playoffs in baseball are largely random. Uh, not, not perfectly random. Of course you, you would definitely take the Braves in a playoff situation over say, if you let the Rockies in, uh, <laughs> but uh, a, a couple of comments that a study I guess, five or six years ago, uh, and they studied different leagues and the odds that the better team advances. Uh, and for uh, baseball to match the NBA's record of best team advancing, baseball teams would have to play best of 75 series in the postseason, <laughs> which is not going to happen. They'd, they'd be playing until February. But that's just kind of the randomness of baseball because when you talk about – when we talk about things like batting average and balls in play – there's a huge luck component in baseball uh, that once you hit the, the the ball with the bat, a lot can happen and great hits can easily become outs and terrible hit terrible hits can become actual hits. So having the playoffs so open, it kind of has this result where teams become more and more conservative. Yeah, and it's uh, you know that it's. It's not the best, but I can understand it. Um, you know, two. Okay, so let, let's let's put the focus then on, on two teams that weren't conservative. Because I'm curious, just as your you know baseball fan take on them. I guess first of all, this one isn't a, a fan take. This is a model take. When you are projecting things out for the Los Angeles Angels, is there a component that is just like an LOL yes no button uh, that lets you project the Angels out in a way that is very angel? Like last night, yes, Shohei Homer steals a base, throws a couple shutout innings, and they still choke it away in the ninth. I, I got to imagine we have a dummy variable for being the Los Angeles Angels. I don't. I don't think I can. Uh simulate a dark sense of humor, but I tend to get amused by those kinds of things because baseball is a long season and you have to see these things. But what amazes me about the angels is that they, they, they hung on to Otani with the idea of going all in. And then they picked up Lucas Giolito, which was a, a, a decent trade, which did not work out well initially. 
But after that, they didn't really do all that much. Yeah, they picked up C.J. Crone, but C.J. Crone hasn't been good in years. Uh, 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 Grichuk has been okay in, with the Rockies, but a lot of that is pumped up by Coors Field. And pick up an arm or two. Uh, it's The Angels did not really push all their chips. They just kind of treaded water again, and they had a worse deadline than either the Astros or the Rangers. The, the Angels are in a worse position than before they went all in. It's a, it's a tough one. It's a, I don't know what they do about that, but it's a, I don't know. It's a tough time to be a, an Angels fan, uh, I think, and just clinging to the hope that Shohei Hotani sticks around uh, despite all that. Last one for you, Dan, before I let you go. Uh, the San Diego Padres, who are eight games out of a playoff spot, still in the top 10 in World Series odds uh, in the latest update because hey, the power of just how good that roster is on paper. And I think we all, as much as the vibes there are terrible and maybe G-Man Choi and Rich Hill could fix that as guys everyone loves. But um, I don't know. What do, what do you make of that? The fact that everything on paper, even with the added information from two-thirds of a season here, still says, man, this Padres team should be so much better than they are. Uh, well, one thing is, one thing I try to inc- I I try to tell people with projections. It doesn't matter whose projections you use, mine or baseball prospectuses or our steamer. Uh, recency bias is really really huge when people are evaluating teams. People always vastly overweigh recent results, predictive value over like predictions, projections, and the like, uh, and change too much on how they look at a team or a player. Uh, for example, I was doing this at the All Star break. And from 2005 to 2022, uh, the Zips projections, and I expect any well-calibrated projection system, the preseason projections still projected second-half winning percentage better than first-half winning percentage did. I'm not even talking about updated in-season projections, but the preseason projections were still better than first-half in in predicting the future. Uh, The Padres... They, they've, it, it's been a rough season for them, but if they can actually sneak into the playoffs, they do have a very good top tier of talent. Uh, they get to ride their top three pitchers. They get to ride Darvish, Snell, and Musgrove a disproportionate amount of time in the playoffs. They get to you know play Machado and Soto, and that first that first tier talent that you have on a team is probably the biggest way you can bend your playoff odds in your favor. Just got to get there. And if you're the Toronto Blue Jays, you hope that those, you know, roughly 70% chance of getting in also coincides with Boba getting healthy. Maybe guys like Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer, Dalton Varshow playing closer to their projection levels the rest of the way. Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs. Thanks so much for taking the time out, man. Keep up all the great work. Always fun. Thanks for having me. Dan Zaborski of Fangraphs. Again, you can go look at, uh, if you're curious around the entirety of Major League Baseball, who changed their 2023 fate the most at the deadline. It's Dan's annual running of his Zips simulations uh, before the trades and after the trades. Now, that is a couple days. Uh, He runs that exactly at the deadline. So uh, the Jays' playoff odds have shifted ever so slightly Uh, Since then, as they continue to struggle here against the Orioles, their playoff odds now down to 63%. So you can see how quickly those things change in such a crowded American League wildcard race. We're going to take a break. I'm going to turn, try to set up this Red Sox series a little bit. We'll talk to Ben Wagner. We'll talk to Gabrielle Starr of the Boston Herald in the second hour as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. 
diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL. The J.D. Bunkus Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. Jay's start a three-game set down at Fenway tonight. Alec Manoa against James Paxson. Before we look ahead to that one, let's uh, continue to try to sort through uh, this mess of a Baltimore Orioles series, this mess of a Baltimore Orioles season series, two and eight now, the Jays against the Orioles. And they were almost out hit and out RBI'd by Ryan Mountcastle over the course of four games. Uh, man who was down there on the call on the radio side for you is Ben Wagner of Sportsnet. He joins us now. Ben, how are you, buddy? Uh, I'm good. I can't wait for the citizenship ceremony for Ryan Mountcastle here in uh, Toronto. Do you need to become a citizen if you like just own the entire city? Like, I feel like it's more of like a king ceremony at this point, right? <laughs> Coronation. Yeah, that's the um, word. <laughs> I uh, I made the joke on the broadcast a couple of times, you know, where the Blue Jays are going to push this guy on the bus to get him out of town. The Blue Jays are going to happily purchase the ticket to get him on a flight out of town. And yesterday, I just ran out of. Uh, of ways to describe the dominance of one individual in a given series. I, and I, and I mean, literally, I think every team, 28 other teams, you know, cause the, the Orioles don't care about the scouting report on Brian Mountcastle. So uh, the blue Jays certainly are the other team, but 28 other teams just looked at their scouting report on Ryan Mountcastle and shredded it. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we're starting over, you know? Yeah, it's uh, it was it's brutal. And, and like Mountcastle has done this for a fair amount of time. Like the fact that if we look at the entire history of Toronto Blue Jays baseball, Mike Trout's the only guy who's out hit him uh, against the Blue Jays. Like they've they've faced a lot of AL East mashers over the years. And Ryan Mountcastle on top of the list. Despite that, the Jays had a chance to win three of those four games and their offense just really couldn't come up with much. Maybe you can write off Tuesday. I'd argue, you know, they come through in that spot in the sixth inning. Maybe it's a different game. It doesn't play out in a 13 to three way, but even, even writing that one off, they lost four to two and they lost six to one. And that six to one game, they kind of not punted, but they went to their lowest leverage bullpen arms. So despite Ryan Mountcastle's dominance, this could have been a series. The blue Jays were in more of if the bats could get going at all. And Ben, I feel like we're back to a conversation you and I have had a couple times, both during games and on this show, this team's inability to execute in big spots with runners in scoring position with fewer than two outs. Uh, the only two guys who had really hit in those situations this year were Boba Shed and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. And one of those guys is on the IL now two thirds of the way into the season. What do we make of this still being an issue? Well, it's an issue, right? And how do you address it? Uh, there has to be a certain change in approach whatever the messaging is whatever the decision making is going into certain at bats there has to be a change and it was alarmingly clear because let's look at where the blue jays were and specifically who is coming up at the plate in leverage situations uh, go back to yesterday early rbi opportunity nothing happened in that, I believe it was the sixth inning, especially with the bases loaded situation, and nothing happened. The bats that you wanted in those situations were coming up. If you want the top of the order, 
two, three, four, five coming to the plate, you got it. You got it in those situations with Vladimir Guerrero Jr. Now George Springer's in the cleanup spot. You got Matt Chapman batting fifth in the lineup. Those are producing spots in the batting order, and you want them batting in those situations, and they're not coming through. Um, you know, the, the Matt Chapman at bat was, the, I think, the most frustrating for the Blue Jays uh, yesterday. And you walk away trying to dissect that game where he takes fastballs. He takes center-cut fastballs. That tells us, you know, if you're looking at the game, that he's clearly looking for something else and sitting spin. I, I, I don't think that even when he was at his best earlier this year, that Matt Chapman was destroying the breaking balls. The breaking ball seemed to be his demise. He was hunting fastballs. He was getting a lot of fastballs. He was hitting the fastball. I don't know why in this situation you would deviate from that, especially the pitches that he was taking. Uh, George Springer had some really tough at-bats as well. And you can go back to the 0 for 35. You can go back to some of the positive exit velocity and the contact. Yeah, I get that. Um, But he's not making a lot of strong contact, period, right now. And that's been a tailspin all season long. So it's about what the Blue Jays are looking for in these situations, too, and not trying to just hit into the situation, too. You know, one run makes a big difference in that situation. You move a runner over, you get a run in, you, get, you have a productive out. It's just, it's just not the Blue Jays' makeup right now to rely on a 2-3 run home run because we certainly haven't seen enough power like we've seen from the Blue Jays' lineup the last couple of years. And I think that's why it's just so maddening because you're not getting the big swing and the big home run, and then you're not executing when it comes down to small ball. It's, uh, yeah, everything is going the wrong way at once. And you mentioned Matt Chapman and George Springer specifically there. They are hitting four or five right now. Uh, we could include Dalton Varsho, who has also hit poorly in those situations and has at times hit in that part of the order. Those three guys, Chapman, Springer, and Varsho, have combined for 33% of the Blue Jays at bats with runners in scoring position. Now, that's not an outlandish stat. That's, you know, hey, you look, you got nine guys in a lineup. Everyone, every three guys should count for one third. But this is accounting for off days and things like that. They are first, third, and fifth in plate appearances with runners in scoring position. And, you know, Vlad, like I said, he he's hit almost 300 in those spots. Bo hit 333 in those spots. It really has been that trio of guys who has kind of an outsized impact on it. At least with Matt Chapman, we can look to other situations and he's been, you know, hit, still mashing lefties and had that hot stretch earlier in the year. But with George Springer, Ben, I'm at a point where I'm not really sure what to make of what's going on with George Springer because you mentioned it, the the batted ball stuff, it has occasionally been mildly encouraging, but not like crazy encouraging. He doesn't look super comfortable up there. There's obviously a mental component once you get into an 0 for 35 skid. What do you make of where George Springer is at right now and just how much this has snowballed on him? I think it's snowballed a lot. Uh, You could see the reaction not only from Springer, but also the teammates. Once he got that blue base hit, they got the blue chase on the board the other day. It was a lot of pressure just take, taken off out of the situation where Springer, you know, doesn't, he's not a forward facing voice publicly out of the clubhouse, right? He doesn't take a lot of questions about this over 35 slide or where he's been in. Um, generally, we see Springer talk after big ball games and, and good performances, either individually or by the club where he had a hand in it. Uh, this, this is certainly something that is in the background 
about Springer, and they waited a really long time to even change him out of that leadoff spot. This is something that has been growing with George, and we I kind of got the feel late May through the first couple of weeks of June that this idea of getting George out of the leadoff spot was percolating. And I thought once he grabbed, and, and I know it's about performance and it's about winning games, but there is a mystique around baseball allowing a player to hit a milestone and then kind of leaning away towards a given situation, specifically a leadoff spot. I thought when George took second place all time in Major League history with leadoff home runs, that opened a window for the Blue Jays to take him out of that leadoff spot. You know what? He's got this nice little accolade, nice milestone in his career, certainly significant in the history of the game. George Springer, you cannot take that away from him. I thought that gave the Blue Jays an opportunity uh, in the middle of June to kind of shift him off that leadoff spot, and they waited almost a month to do it. Uh, you know, so this that is just like one little point where uh, it took a while to get it done, but it is a conversation. It's something that they looked at. They try to make it successful for the player because everything is there. If we're talking about it, the front office certainly is talking about it, and it's being addressed in the coaching staff in the pre pre series meetings and the hitting meetings uh, as you try to match up the lineups and, and George is obviously aware of it too, uh, because the data is right in front of him. So all that, all that being said, um, we just haven't seen George turn it on to this point in the year. And a lot of it too is uh, an, an approach. You know, I, I think of a lot of the themes when you go one through nine in this blue Jays lineup, minus just a couple of guys here, that that approach looks like they're they're looking for something specifically or guessing that they're going to be attacked a certain way and um they're they're buying in and completely selling out on an approach that is has been reversed so in terms of approach uh they are reportedly going to call up the guy in the minor leagues with the best approach in Davis Schneider. Uh, we don't know a corresponding move. The, the Blue Jays themselves haven't confirmed that, but a couple people are reporting it. Johnny Junta of Gate 14, Shai Davidi uh, of Sportsnet later after that. So um, with respect to Davis Schneider, now I guess the first question is, where are we going to find some plate appearances for him? Because they haven't used that 26th man, the Ernie Clement, Nathan Lucas, uh, Jordan Luplo spot very much at all. Do you think if they're calling up a 24-year-old prospect who has hit at the level David Schneider has hit this year, that we might see that end-of-bench role used a little bit more going forward? Uh, David Schneider is going to be in the big leagues today. That's oh, okay. um, I, I, have, I have the same – I have very good intel and hmm. sources that have confirmed that to me as well. He is on it. Is in Boston right now. He is anticipating his major league debut. That's going to happen. Uh, now the Blue Jays have to make a roster move, not only to get him on the 40, they have to get him on the active roster. And uh, I don't know the corresponding move, but if you look at where the Blue Jays are, um, we know there's some redundancy in position players, right? What happens with that last spot that is an Erdin Clement, maybe an option back, but you still have to clear up some 40. What happens to Santiago Espinal? You know, is his spot redundant? on the roster. Uh, David Schneider is somebody that's really intriguing. It's really interesting to watch what his swing adjustments have resulted both in power down in AAA Buffalo and the on base over the last month has just absolutely skyrocketed. And um, I, I'm curious to watch if he gets a good run at this, 
how it translates from a from a season where he has dominated the automatic balls and strike system at triple a and this plays into it with some of the numbers for him where the automatic balls and strike system it's it's defined it's defined you can go up and you're not going to be able to be manipulated in your strike zone by a pitcher you know expanding the zone getting calls off the plate and then on Friday, Saturdays, and Sundays, you can also challenge. And apparently, he's been a master at doing this as well because he's so zoned in on where his eye is. So if he gets a good run, and you know, it'd be really difficult for somebody to be called up and just sit on the bench for the next three or four days in this series against Boston and not get a chance you know, to display what, uh, what the Blue Jays desperately need. They need somebody to get on. They need somebody to have... Uh, just be a threat in given situations too. Um, so, you know, Davis by a credit to changing where he was power wise and just kind of splashing and then moving forward past a couple of other prospects in Spencer Horwitz in Addison Barger to get an opportunity like this. Um, I don't, I, I hope he does get that chance, but I don't see that, that second or last spot on the roster, you know, making an impact and really shifting things around. If we Okay, that, that, and that all makes sense, and thank you for the intel on, on Davis Schneider there from the AAA level and how that ABS system is going to translate. That'll be a fascinating uh, thing to watch in this weekend, and I'll be listening to your call uh, if he gets into one of these games. Now, if he is going to get an opportunity, whether it's you know just off the bench or if he gets a start against a lefty like James Paxton tonight, um, he has played... First, second, third, left, right, DH uh, this year. He has played every position except catcher and center field, over his, and including pitcher, uh, over the course of his minor league career. Um, in talking to your people in Buffalo or within the Blue Jays, do you have a sense of where the quality of defense is at, at second base and left field where he's primarily played? To be honest, no. <laughs> uh, I, I don't on the defensive side. I don't have a feel yet on where you know, where a premier position is, but this is, this is, if we look at how with Merrifield, Kevin Vigio, even Santiago Espinal to some capacity, um, and eventually Paul DeYoung as well have been utilized. Um, I think, I think their approach defensively and how they roll guys out uh, into a, a defensive makeup. They love still versatility. They love the, the ability to not be, anchored by a couple of positions within the roster, not only to have it in a starting lineup capacity, but then what you can do with guys off the bench later, you know, Mm -hmm. can you sub one spot or another and have two or three people that you can move around the diamond? Um, I think that's another thing that makes David Schneider really, really intriguing to the blue Jays, let alone the fact that he could jump in there against some left-handed pitching and, you know, they're going to get a run at it over the weekend in Boston. So, you know, it just might not be a start, you know, for David Schneider. It might be an opportunity late in the ball game to get some at bats too. Uh, but defensively, I don't have the feel. I think he just kind of rolls out to where the Blue Jays like to be. I, I think I think he doesn't have a premier position, but I think he's got an ability to be 
more than serviceable in a number of defensive positions. Not unlike a, a Kevin Biggio with him bouncing, you know, second and right, sometimes first. Hey, Schneider's got the left field uh, side of that as well. And you mentioned, uh, you know, the potential roles late in games. This Red Sox bullpen has four left-handed pitchers in it. So uh, mm-hmm. some potential in games you start Kiermaier and Varsho or if Biggio draws a start somewhere uh, should be ample opportunity. The other uh, move I think we're anticipating today is Jay Jackson will rejoin the team at some point this weekend. So the way that this bullpen Pen is going to stack up now uh, with Trevor Richards joining Jordan Romano on the IL. Swanson, Garcia, Meza, Hicks, Cabrera, and then Jackson and one other, whether it's it's Hatch or Francis, uh, who both pitched multiple innings yesterday. When you look at how that bullpen shapes up now, Ben, obviously the Jordan Hicks acquisition was very, very good anyway. Even if the bullpen was fully healthy, you add an electric arm like that, it's going to be a positive. And then Jordan Romano hits the IL, and you're like, wow, this is really, really good timing. I look at the Trevor Richards IL stint, which kind of came out of nowhere for us yesterday with, with neck inflammation there. Um, and now I'm thinking, well, Jordan Hicks has thrown six out appearances a couple times this year, was starting as recently as last year. Um, how important has Hicks become so quickly with the other guy they're comfortable bouncing between leverage and length, Trevor Richards, now on the aisle? Well, and take it a step further, too, because we've watched Eric Swanson get used more than he ever has in his career, and he's been pitched into high-leverage situations. And the other night, even though it was a mop-up appearance for Jordan Hicks in his debut with the Blue Jays, he needed to pitch. He only pitched one time in the last 13 days prior to that outing. And then he comes in in a leverage situation. I saw in the back of the mind, you might ask Hicks in his first leverage opportunity with the Blue Jays to pitch that ninth inning just to give Eric Swanson a breather. Maybe try to avoid Swanee, but the matchups really favored Swanson and the splitter much more than uh, keeping Hicks in that ball game. And I asked John Schneider, you know, if, if he pitches a day, ahead and you see really like where you're at could you give him a multiple inning stint and he said yes um, a lot goes into the thought process there including the pitch count and how how kind of tense the prior outing was before you lean on a guy without a day in between to go and ask to get six outs but that is certainly on the table and that makes Hicks extremely valuable for the Blue Jays to go out there and have one the durability the ability then to get multiple innings and the fact that it's electric stuff. I mean, a power fastball, heavy sinker. And since, since he tweaked the grip on his sweeper and it's been even a more devastating pitch this season for him, uh, that little adjustment has made him just an elite weapon for the blue Jays bullpen Uh, in the absence of Jordan Romano and only then bolstering what the blue Jays can run out there after he arrives. So these things, as our pal Dan Schulman is fond of saying, these things have a way uh, of working themselves out. But theoretically, at some point, uh, Jordan Romano and Trevor Richards would be back. Chad Green has now made four rehab appearances and is going to make a fifth on Saturday at AAA Buffalo. Uh, It sounds like they'd like to get him into back-to-back games before they they bring him back up. But there are a lot of bodies here. Genesis Cabrera has looked pretty solid for this team since, since coming over the one blip aside. But the fact that he has options, he's optionable. Um, I, I guess, you know, at some point he might be the odd man out too, at least as far as their, I guess we, I, I'm doing a poor job of setting up this question, Ben, because I just kind of am going through that. They're also operating a six man rotation, but after that 17 game stretch, there are a whole bunch of off days. There are just some weird pitching side decisions ahead for this team. 
There are, and that should be a good problem to have when you've got guys that you can maneuver back and forth. Then you get into the matrix of watching guys in their 10-day lapses hmm. and then trying to line out when you may have a heavier left-handed hitting lineup face the Blue Jays. You want to make sure that Tim Mazin may have that backup with Yenesis Cabrera and company. It, it's a good problem to have because this Blue Jay bullpen is very, very good. The, the Blue Jay bullpen is a reason that the Blue Jays have been in so many tight ball games and have opportunities to win in the 7th, the 8th, and the ninth. That you, you cannot deny that. And the trade deadline only enhanced that for the Toronto Blue Jays. And, you know, the, the front office should get a <laughs> – while it was, you know, incremental shopping, uh, you know, kind of drifting through the aisles, <laughs> not going in and getting what you want right away uh, from the St. Louis Cardinals with all <laughs> those players, um, they were able to do it and get pieces that – were needed. We're really, really needed. Um, if you've got guys that have options, if you have the matchups, um, but you don't honestly want that. You don't want a lot of movement. You'd like to have Chad Green come back in the next couple of weeks and just fall right into a role. Hopefully with Jordan Romano scheduled to pitch off the mound here in Toronto this weekend, hopefully that back, you know, continues to improve and he feels fine and he can ramp up and, and get a couple of outings under his belt, get activated Maybe by the by this time next week, hopefully, when once his days lapse, um, and it won't be that too much time on the shelf. Those are the encouraging signs because you don't want a bullpen that's too disruptive. And while you get down into the fringes, you have maybe just a couple of pieces that you can maneuver in and out. You'd really like to only use those guys and flex them back and forth into Jay Jackson. Um, he's going to be the guy that gets on the shuttle. You have Zach Pop kind of on the periphery mm-hmm. as well. Um, and if he's throwing the ball well, I think the Blue Jays wouldn't hesitate to get him back up here. And out of the 17-game stretch, while that's nice to give guys a breather in the rotation, there is a ripple effect later on because you've got to you've got to make a decision, right? And a five-man rotation now bumps somebody into that bullpen, and where you say Kikuchi. Looks like on the outside that he could be the odd man out. He would fall back into a role that he really pitched well in last year for the Blue Jays as well. And I think this year's version of Kikuchi would be even better back there now that he's got some of the command stuff down and is trusting, you know, three of his pitches with with regularity now. I think he'd be electric back there. It's just, man, how do you take him out of the rotation right now with the way he's pitched? All of this stuff is, uh, I don't know, it makes for good radio. It gives you a lot to talk about on the call, Ben, as as relievers are, are up and down and as you work through these decisions. I'm really looking forward to hearing you call this Red Sox series on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Uh, Thanks for taking the time out this morning buddy my pleasure looking forward to the series in beantown ben wagner voice of the toronto blue jays on the Sportsnet radio network he will have the call for you tonight 7 10 first pitch alec manoa against james paxton it's a 4 10 start tomorrow 135 on sunday a show ali and ben shulman will have jays talk pre and post for you on saturday and sunday uh, blair and barker as usual, five to seven today and Jay's talk post game wanted to read out a tweet. It was not sent to me, but I'll read it out anyway, because we're, we are talking about bullpen nitpicking here and who to use when, and we're talking about Davis Schneider coming up and Hey, the 82 plate appearances you've given to the 26th man and 25th man at times this year, 62 plate appearances to the 26th man. Uh, you know, could you better use those with a Davis Schneider type? Hey, that's 25 more plate appearances the rest of the way. That's not nothing, but As Glenn Allen Chill points out, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., George Springer, Alec Manoa, 
Alejandro Kirk. Those players were worth 14.9 wins above replacement last year using Fangraph's war metric. They are on pace to be worth three wins above replacement this year together. That is an 11.9 win drop-off in those four players. And they're four players who, as our boy the Zoobs points out, you couldn't really insure against more. George Springer, starting his decline years, they went out and got Varsho and, K- and Kiermaier so that George Springer could play in right field. And hey, it's worked out from the keeping George Springer on the field standpoint. He hasn't hit the IL at all this year. Um, you couldn't have foreseen this large an offensive drop-off. Alejandro Kirk, I mean, catchers are a little up and down, and I, I think you're still getting enough defensive value from Alejandro Kirk. The, the bats just cooled significantly. That That's probably the one you know, you least worry about of those four. And then, yeah, Alec Manoa, we've talked about it all year. It is the most unlikely thing pretty much any of us have ever seen. There's no precedent for someone who was that good, that young, also falling off that quickly at that young an age. And then the Vlad side of it is, yeah, he's just, I mean, he's having his worst offensive season relative to league average. Those are four players who... You could have tried to insulate around a little bit. I mean, with Kirk, you've got Danny Jansen there. Like we said, with Springer, they they upgraded the outfield defense at a couple of spots. But your best hitter, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., the guy who the offense is supposed to run through, just not being that guy, you can't really account for that. George Springer not only needing the move to right field, but also falling off a cliff offensively is very, very difficult to account for when he has three and a half years left on his deal. The Manoa part, I mean, even then they kind of insured against it by going out and spending on Chris Bassett. Although you could certainly argue they should have done a better job having starting pitching depth ready at triple a. It's just a lot of, look, I love doing the, the small stuff. I love the, Hey, pinch hit here, pinch run there, which reliever against which pocket of the lineup. I live for that stuff. It's my favorite part about getting to do uh, the occasional radio call as well in the color role next to Ben Wagner, or Ben Schulman. I love that stuff. But when it comes to, figuring out what is wrong with the Toronto Blue Jays, why they have not lived up to expectations, why for long stretches it has felt like um, they are not the team that they were expected to be. It comes down to the top guys not uh, not performing at that level. Um, by the way, correct myself from one thing I said earlier. I said the Yankees have passed the Jays in the, the wild card race. I accidentally had uh, an outdated. I was trying to find the Red Sox record since July uh, 4th and had those standings open. My mistake, uh, the Jays are in the third wild card spot right now, but Boston, New York, Seattle, Los Angeles, right behind them, uh, Houston and Tampa pulling ahead. It's a, uh, it's a tough one. You have to think, look, I, I don't, you can't take, last year's wins above replacement for those four key guys and be like, yeah, what if they won? What if they were worth 11 more wins? Would this team be win 11 more games? It doesn't exactly work that way, but you'd be a lot better off. Um, and then as Glenn Allen chill points out, even if you priced in, those guys would all be 25% worse this year. They're still going to come in eight wins shy of that mark. So even if you were really negative about those guys, you would not have expected this, rough of a go for the Toronto Blue Jays. It's a, it's a tough one. And it really does make it feel like yes, missed opportunity at the trade deadline would have liked an extra right-handed bat. Um, It's something we've known they've needed all year and it would help. And that is a shortcoming of, of the front office ability to navigate that trade deadline. Unquestionably. Even if they did that though, there is a lot of improvement that has to come in house because there's no way to, preemptively account for or account for on the fly that four of your most important players 
have taken big steps back this year. It's tough. And the Jays need better from them starting tonight in Boston. We'll take a break. We'll bring on Gabrielle Starr of the Boston Herald to set up this series proper against a team that has, short of the Baltimore Orioles, been the hottest team in baseball over the last month. Gabrielle Starr joins us next as Jays Talk Plus continues on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360. Smart takes on the biggest stories in sports. The Fan Drive Time with Ben Ennis. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Jay's Talk Plus. I'm Blake Murphy. That's a song called I Want to Get Better uh, by the cousin of our next guest, uh, Gabrielle Starr, Red Sox reporter for the Boston Herald, is going to join us momentarily here. Jay's getting ready for three down at Fenway, where whether on the road or at home, they have had just a world of trouble with the Boston Red Sox so far this year. World of trouble with the American League East. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles continue to put a hurt on them, taking eight of 10 so far, but the Jays are winless against the Red Sox. Gabrielle Starr, of the Boston Herald joins us now to help set up the series. Gabrielle, how are you? I'm good. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on. Uh, so we have something in common here between Red Sox and Blue Jays fans. And I know that you guys just went through it this last series with Cal Raleigh uh, kind of being the, the bane of the Red Sox existence. We in Toronto have just gone through it with Ryan Mountcastle, two guys who crush both of these teams. Uh, we, we at least have some common ground there. Absolutely. Yeah. I think Cal Raleigh coming into that multi-homer game earlier this week against the Red Sox had only had three or four multi-homer games all season. And most of them have been against the Red Sox. Um, He is just, you know what? He's the new Rowdy (laughs) Tellez. You know who the other multi-homer games he's had have come against? The Toronto Blue Jays. He's done it twice. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a lot. Two and two now, right? Or two, two against you guys, three against the Red Sox, maybe. It's at least two against each. It's too many is is what it is. Um, exactly. and, and Ryan Mountcastle almost out hitting the Jays in this series as he's done to the Red Sox at time. Uh, so that aside, there, things have gone fairly well for the Red Sox of late. They're only two games back of the Blue Jays in the wild card now. This is obviously a, a very big series. 14-8 um, and eight over the last 22 or so. What has started to click for this Red Sox team as they, you know, not go on a, a crazy heater, but they've started to turn things around this last month or so? You know what? I think the most impressive thing about what the Red Sox have been doing since about mid-June through July uh, is that even without I guess you could say three fifths of their starting rotation. What, what is supposed to be their main starting rotation. They've been one of the best pitching staffs in baseball. Um, They have been excellent really since, you know, late May, uh, both starting and relieving moving Nick Pavetta to the bullpen has been an astounding success. Uh, Cutter Crawford has really been able to do pretty much anything asked of him this season. And, you know, the fact that they're where they are right now without sale, without Tanner Hawk, without Garrett Whitlock, um, that James Paxton has been able to come back after not pitching at all in 2021, uh, 2022 and barely pitching in 2021. I think he only made, that one start uh, in April before having the Tommy John surgery. 
it's it's really a testament to the players themselves, also to the team, to the staff um, that you know this is this is an organization that has struggled to develop pitching for you know a long time, and they have really kind of found something incredible in Brian Bayo. Um, Tanner Houck, before he got hurt, was really kind of so huge for this rotation as guys like Kluber and Sale were, you know, trying to find themselves early in the season. It's, it's something that they haven't had in a long time. Um, and I think a lot of people would agree that good seasons hinge on pitching uh, and seasons are made or broken by pitching. And the Red Sox are not only keeping themselves afloat with their pitching, um, but have a winning record um, and have been able to do things like sweeping the Toronto Blue Jays Hmm. and, you know, knocking off players with better records than them, better standings than them. Um, You know, they, they beat up on the Texas Rangers, the Atlanta Braves. um, And those are teams that, you know, it's basically a by a far gone conclusion at this point that those are postseason teams. And the Red Sox are not only kind of able to, to endure playing them, the Red Sox have actually come out on top in most of their contests against teams with 500 or better records. They have a, a very good record against good teams. Um, and that, that says a lot. The, the funny part about that is that they have struggled a lot more against bad teams. <laughs> <laughs> it- it um, is. You know, that, that's kind of the weird thing. It's like, if I could just beat the Oakland A's, well, you, you couldn't. So, I don't know. It's a tough one to figure out because, you know, they're the anti-Jays in that sense where the Jays have done exactly what, like, the seventh best team in, in the American League should should do, which is, yeah, they beat the bad teams and then they can't beat anyone ahead of them. Now, the Jays have had kind of these comically outsized struggles against the Orioles and the Red Sox, which affects those numbers a lot. But it is it is probably more frustrating to be on the Red Sox side of, yeah, we beat all the good teams and then, and then don't do it against uh, the lesser team. So you mentioned just how thinned out this Red Sox staff has been by injury. They've had to use a ton of bullpen days and they've been able to get through that because, you know, Pavetta has been so good as a ball guy, or they've had a bunch of off days to let them juggle things. They're about to start a 26 game in 27 day stretch beginning tonight. The Jays are in the middle of a, a pretty tough stretch a, a, without a day off themselves. What is that? We know James Paxson's going to go tonight. There are some TBDs on there. Um, Nick Pavetta was back in the starting rotation last time through. What is this rotation going to look like for the Red Sox during this heavy month uh, without barely a day off? Are they going to continue riding these bullpen days? Or are they going to have to trust someone in a starting spot? So the good thing that the Red Sox are are hopefully going to have is that they will have some of those starting pitchers actually returning as well. Um, Chris Sale is currently rehabbing with AAA. He made, I believe his first start was two innings, 40 pitches, and he didn't allow a run. I think it was like one hit, you know, a couple walks, a couple strikeouts. Um, He looked very good. He said he felt good. So he's he's getting closer, uh, and Tanner Houck has been throwing since, uh, I think during the All-Star break, he was cleared to begin throwing. Um, and even though it was a facial fracture and not an arm-related injury, they're building him up like a pitcher, Alex Cora said. And then Garrett Whitlock has been throwing, um, but I don't believe he has started his rehab assignment just yet. But Alex Cora did say that they are hoping to have 
all three pitchers back by the end of the month in various increments. And that will obviously be huge even to get one of them back first, uh, which would almost certainly be sale, you know, will be a huge difference maker, even just in that you've seen over the last few days in particular, the bullpen is looking a little bit tired um, because they have had to do multiple bullpen games every single, you know, time through the rotation it's you know it's not really a, a time through the rotation it's <laughs> three <laughs> starters and, and and two bullpen days so they've really kind of cobbled it together without all these guys but pitchers are starting to come back and that is going to be huge for them um yeah. <laughs> given given their proximity to the wild card, so they're only two games back here. I, I know that it's always difficult to navigate a trade deadline when you have guys who you think can contribute who are coming back at some point. Um, we're even acknowledging that, though, that they have a couple guys on the way back, that they've played well lately and are close-ish to a playoff spot. Were you surprised at all that they weren't a little bit more aggressive fortifying this group at the trade deadline? You know, honestly, I think I would have been surprised either way because that is kind of the odd position that they in which they find themselves right now where I think that they have in some ways exceeded expectations uh, this summer, especially recently, the last two months of the season. They've, they've kind of, I mean, since the middle of June, they've been, I think, the best team in the American League. Um, since the end of June, I think they have the best record in the majors. At least that was the case a couple of days ago. This is a team where you kind of look at them and you say they are better than maybe people thought that they would be. Uh, but they also, of course, have a lot of competition for those wild card spots, even just in their own division, let alone the rest of the American League. And it's kind of this weird limbo state of, well, anyone can do anything once you get into the playoffs. If you can get into the playoffs, you know, you're the 88-win Braves two years ago, you can win the World Series. Uh, if you're the 2004 Red Sox, you can come back from down three games to none, which no team has ever done before and still hasn't done, and upset the Yankees at the, like, height of their, you know, like, prime, and you can reverse the curse. Like, the postseason is anyone's game. We saw that with the Phillies last year. They were the first ever third wild card team, you know, on their side of the, the game, and they won the pennant. That's the fun, crazy thing about the playoffs, but I think with the trade deadline, it was a combination of they didn't want to do what they did last year, which was try to buy and sell. Um, that didn't really work out for them, at least in during the season. They did add to their farm system. That obviously helps in other ways. Um, But I think this year they kind of decided to do the opposite, which was barely buy and barely sell. They were in discussions with the Marlins um, about Justin Turner. They apparently dipped their toe in the Justin Verlander discussions, but I think really they felt like this is not quite yet the year to go crazy. Chaim Bloom reiterated several times after the deadline on Tuesday, we're not going to make moves just to make moves. We're not going to make a splash just to make a splash. You know, it was only going to be things that were really, really worth it. Um, It is a little surprising just given the fact that for the first time in about five years, they really have a farm system that they can use to make good moves. 
Um, they have a lot of talent, especially infield talent in the top two levels of their farm system. And there's not enough room, frankly, for all of them to come up and be Red Sox players mm-hmm. in the future. They have trade pieces, uh, but I think they just felt like maybe we sneak into the playoffs this year. That'll be great. That'll be cool. Um, and if they do, I think that that will get get them to kind of be one of the big players this offseason. Um, they have a lot of decisions that they're going to have to make this offseason regarding you know, young players that they might want to lock into an Atlanta Braves kind of deal. And then they have a lot of um, kind of free agents that they can either bring back or part with. But I think this year, the trade deadline, it was kind of like a wait and see approach. Um, and I think you also see that in the fact that they were considering trading Justin Turner, but they were also interested in acquiring Justin Verlander. And I wrote yesterday that that signals that they kind of were going to see which way the wind blew on Tuesday regarding, you know, if the right move comes around for selling one of our top players, we'll do that. If the right opportunity comes along for us to add, we'll do that. Um, But I think ultimately, even though Bloom told us that they don't consider any one specific prospect, top prospect, exactly untouchable, if you look at what the Astros gave up for Verlander, their number one and number four prospects um, for the Red Sox, that would have been Marcelo Meyer. And it, you know, there's really, I mean, unless it's like Shohei Otani, I, I don't see the Red Sox giving up Marcelo Meyer. So I, I think it was more about a kind of thin market, this trade deadline and them just deciding, you know what, we don't really need to add too much because we're about to add Trevor story and Chris sale and Tanner Houck and Garrett Whitlock And we have a good farm system. We could promote somebody if we really wanted to. They have top prospects who are doing really well in AAA. If they really wanted to add somebody, they can do it that way too without sacrificing for, you know, a player when a team is asking too much. Yeah, and that makes sense. And, you know, you look at the the pipeline and how that could build, you know, kind of the foundation of the next competitive core. And you get it a little bit. You mentioned Meyer and a couple of the other prospects. Rafaela, who's hitting pretty well at AAA. Uh, he's, since- who, he's who I was thinking of when yeah. I said call somebody up. I'm not saying that they are. I'm just saying I, I've been told by people at the Red Sox that they already consider him a big league outfielder defensively. Um, I think anyone who's seen him, mm-hmm. like, work out there, would you know, wouldn't really question that. And now the way that he's hitting at AAA, he is making a case where he could be a September call-up, especially if they're in a playoff hunt. Um, so, they, I mean, they have they have internal options, and that's something that they haven't had in a long time. And I think that that's why they kind of feel like we can, we can kind of stand pat um, and, you know, make a couple of moves. I also think the Kike Hernandez trade, I gave it an A as a grade um, the other day because – you know, he's, he was leading MLB in errors when they mm. traded him. Um, and the fact that they were able to get two minor league pitchers for him. I mean, yes, they paid about 2 million plus of his salary, but they, you know, they got something out of him when I think people thought he was going to be a, D- a DFA candidate for sure. Um, that to me is is a huge win um and he gets to go back to la and be happy there so i think it's a mutually beneficial thing yeah i think so i honestly don't think it's that bad of a deadline just more quiet than people thought 
Yeah, and Urias is, you know, a, a nice enough piece. We'll see when and how he he mixes in there, um, if at all. And, and yeah, so, uh, Gabriel, before I let you go, I wanted to ask you one more. So, you, you you know, we're talking about this young Red Sox core that is going to be coming up at some point. Uh, a key piece of that is a, going to be a guy who's already up and is already hitting like crazy. Tristan Casas coming off of a July Rookie of the Month where he had like a 1.200 OPS or something like that. Uh, it is... You know, it was easier from the Toronto perspective when he wasn't quite hitting. What has clicked for, for <laughs> Casas over the last little bit? Because he's been a monster for like six weeks here. You know, I think the biggest thing that people need to remember with him and with a lot of rookies is that there is a huge adjustment to going from AAA to the majors, especially if you are a guy who's 23 years old gets called up last year to a team in a really bad state. And you even saw him making these adjustments last year where he played some, he didn't even play 30 games, but the first 10 or so games compared to the last 15 games or whatever it was, he was already drawing more walks. He was getting more patient at the plate. He was seeing pitches better, even in that short amount of time. And then this is his first year on the opening day roster. And, He's an even bigger part of this than I think, even though they stuck with him, you know, they parted ways with Eric Hosmer, even with all of that, I don't think that people were really sure if he was going to be as much of an everyday player from the get-go as he has been. Uh, And, you know, he's seeing players, he's never, he's seeing pitchers he's never faced before in his career. He's adjusting to, a very different environment, a different ballpark, other different ballparks. And I think people forget that, you know, it's actually more rare for a rookie top prospect, you know, first round pick to come up and just be perfect from day one to be incredible from day one, more likely there's going to be an adjustment period and he's had his. And if you look at his progress every single month, he got, significantly better his like his batting average jumped at least 30 points every single month his slugging percentage huge strides just and and he's drawing walks the entire time you know people are upset in in March April uh that he's not you know that he wasn't getting a ton of hits right he only had 10 hits the first month of the season He drew 16 walks. He wasn't not getting on base. It's not like he was only getting 10 hits and then, you know, he's just striking out 85 times. He did, you know, have too many strikeouts early on in the season, but he also was still getting on base in other ways. He is patient at the plate in a way that I think a lot of rookies aren't. You see so many strikeouts in today's game, but he's a guy who finds other ways to get on base even when he's not hitting. Uh, and now he's hitting. So watch out. Yeah, it's uh, it's not great. And that he's part of a lineup that has a lot of lefties. <laughs> the Jays rolling out uh, two, may, arguably three starters in this series who have struggled with, with lefties a little bit in Alec Manoa tonight. Chris Bassett certainly a little later. And then Jose Barrios has fairly normal splits, but but still lefties on the road uh, have been tough. This is going to be a tough one for the Blue Jays. Big series all around with these teams so close in the wild card race. Gabriel Starr, thanks so much for taking the time out this morning. It is my pleasure. I hope it's going to be a really interesting series. 
I hope so too. It can't be worse than the Orioles series. I don't think, but I, I guess it's baseball. It can always be a little, uh, a little worse. Have a great weekend down at the park. Thanks. Have a good one. Gabrielle star, a Red Sox reporter for the Boston Herald. Um, yeah, some, some optimism, uh, around the Red Sox and Tristan Casas being, uh, Pretty good middle of the order hitter the last little while is uh, is a big part of that. Big, big series for the Blue Jays coming off of losing three or four to the Baltimore Orioles. Uh, they're in the final wild card spot. Boston's only two behind them, though. So quick math, you get swept. You're out of that spot. Um, but if you can do some damage here, uh, the Yankees are playing the Astros, by the way. So maybe you can gain some extra clearance uh, from the Yankees in that race. And then Seattle and, and the Angels are head-to-head. So the teams on the, the fringier parts of that wildcard race could be taking games off of each other as well. Uh, elsewhere around the AL, uh, Baltimore are playing against the New York Mets. And Tampa have Detroit. So Tampa's probably going to have uh, a fine weekend. I hope you're going to have a fine weekend as well. Blair and Barker are going to have you five to seven. They'll also have Jay's talk for you post game. Uh, Show Ali and Ben Shulman will have Jay's talk pre and post for you Saturday and Sunday. Ben Wagner on the radio call. Uh, we'll be back Monday. No holiday for us. Uh, so coming out of this series, we'll be with you 10 a.m. Monday to break it all down. Uh, thanks to Gabrielle for coming on, to Ben Wagner, to Dan Zimborski, to Jonah Bierenbaum. Thanks to Jeff Azaparty, Lance Kennedy, and Jennifer Rolnick behind the glass for all their wonderful work all week. It's Alec Manoa against James Paxton tonight. Uh, 7 p.m. start. James Paxton enjoys playing against the Toronto Blue Jays. Faced him seven times since 2018. He has a 268 ERA, and the Jays have hit under 200 against him. Let's hope that corrects itself. We'll talk to you Monday at 10 a.m. on the Sportsnet Radio Network and Sportsnet 360.